0: Hey, Frogcast fans. Uh, I have this interview I did with Billy Corbin this week. He he directed The You, the Cocaine Cowboys movies, Screwball, uh, Broke on 30 for 30. Uh, I think this is like the third time I've talked to him, so we sort of know each other by now. Um, anyway, he's a great talker, always a great interview. His latest is called Cocaine Cowboys, Kings of Miami, and it's out on Netflix right now. Uh, it's about these guys, Sal Magluda and Willie Falcone uh, who were trafficking cocaine in Miami in the eighties and nineties. Um, beyond that, I don't think there's anything you need to know about the series in order to understand the interview. I don't think we, uh, got into too many spoilers either. Anyway, it's a pretty fun show. Um, my voice sounds a little weird at the beginning of this cause there was getting an echo and I had to put a filter, uh, on my track, but hopefully it isn't too bad. Uh, It also goes away about halfway through. Um, Anyway, I know we haven't done too many episodes on the free feed lately uh, just because we've been busy doing Pod Yourself a Gun, and those are all free. So just fill your eager snouts with that. Um, If you're still thirsty for more content, you can always subscribe on Patreon at patreon.com slash frockcast. There's a lot of bonus frockcasts on there. So check that out. Do it. It'll be awesome. Uh, Anyway, here's me and Billy Corbin. Vince. Hey, how you doing?
1: I'm all right. I need a haircut, but other than that, I'm all right.
0: Yeah, you haven't been to uh is it still the pandemic hair for you?
1: Still the pandemic hair for yeah, but 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 luckily the pandemic ended in Florida last summer. So <laughs> Woo! We're open for business, baby.
0: That's right. Yeah, you guys are uh doing great now.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. You know what's really open for business? The ICU, apparently. <laughs> Unfucking believable.
0: Wasn't there like a Bill Maher where he was congratulating uh, somebody in Florida about how well they'd done
1: COVID? Yeah, the uh, the governor Ron De-, De-, De Santis, as they call him. Um, yeah, just a pile of bodies uh, now that he's going to run for re-election, standing on top of. Mm-hmm. Unfucking believable. <laughs> I mean, and and you know, tr- out there trying to be like, well, I'm not anti-vax, and I'm not, I'm he's anti-mask though, and 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 then he uh. He fucking um uh selling don't fauci my florida gear <laughs> to raise money for his reelection campaign. So there you have it.
0: Well, politics is merch now.
1: Politic wow, yeah. Listen, politics is the WWE. I think we talked about this on Screwball. You know, like that's <laughs> that's what it is. It's all like performative, yeah. It's all se- selling uh yeah, action figures and and t-shirts and shit. Yeah.
0: Right. Um so okay, the docuseries. Um I feel like at this point in your career, uh, like you're not a real Miami criminal until Billy Corbin has made a documentary about you. Um, Like you must have guys jumping over themselves to tell you about all the crazy shit they did in the 80s and 90s. Like, is there, do you find that? Do you find yourself having to uh, separate bullshit from fact? Yeah.
1: So uh, Alfred Spellman, my producing partner, uh, often jokes that. When people get released from prison in Florida, their first call is to their mother, and their second call is to Rack and Tour <laughs> to make a documentary uh, about them. Um, yeah, I mean, especially now with the ubiquity of true crime content and this kind of golden era of documentary filmmaking that we are in right now, it's there is something kind of postmodern about uh, criminals who are sort of already some of them are already like contemporaneously documenting their crimes for their inevitable capture release and documentary series. Like, you know, it, it, it feels that way. Like people coming to the table, like, but I got footage, bro. It's like, Mm -hmm. you're a criminal. Why do you have footage? You know, (laughs) like, you know, it's probably why you got caught and convicted and, you know, are in prison right now. But like, yeah, no, it's, it's, so while it's easier to get access, the vetting is that much more important you know, the, the, the bullshit meter, you know, like I, I think about, I feel like there was this guy running around as Pablo Escobar's son mm-hmm. for for a while, who was not in fact Pablo <laughs> Escobar's son. Um, Pablo Escobar, I think, does have a, a real son, but then there was like this other kind of imposter running around, if I remember correctly, and so like, you have to, it's it, it, that much more incumbent upon us to do, our, to do our homework.
0: Right, and then how do you do that, um when you're dealing with like criminals and people who are, or who might be like legitimately dangerous?
1: Very carefully.
0: <laughs> um, I <laughs> um,
1: So uh, I, I, that's part of the reason I think, you know, for the most part, you know, sometimes we, we discover, I guess, obscure criminals in the case of like the first cocaine cowboys, not a lot of those characters were, were, were well kind of, known or publicized per se, uh, certainly not in several decades, but, um, but part of, uh, uh, what we do is, I mean, you like this series, for example, these are, this case was the biggest cocaine trafficking case in us history at the time. So, um, well-documented by the government, by the defense. Um, and in fact, when, when we first started this project, Alfred and I were interviewed for ocean drive magazine and, um, we talked about the Willie and Sal documentary being like a passion project for us. And lo and behold, Sal Magluda has a ocean drive subscription in federal prison. <laughs> there he was in his cell reading our interview in ocean drive magazine. And I think someone in the, in the series says that, um, there may be six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but in Miami, there's only one or two degrees from Willie and Sal, like for everybody. And so sure to sure as shit, I hear from friends and family going, hey, Sal read your interview on Ocean Drive and wants to talk to you. And we became pen pals. And eventually, through the years, uh, he sent me to his parents' house. Uh, His mom made me capacito, fed me pastelitos. And we sat there going through photo albums, going back from Cuba, all the way to Sal's arrest in 91, and scanning pictures and going through their personal archive of home movies and and race, boat race videos. And the next thing you know, I'm in Sal's giant, you know, private walk-in storage unit with 20 years of documents and videos and uh, trial exhibits and photographs and audio tapes. And uh, and, and that was really the, the treasure trove. And that happened in the middle, towards the end of, of the project. And that obviously, you know, um, I mean, Sal just handed, handed us the key, mm-hmm. no pun, no pun intended to the, to the kingdom, to the kingdom there.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, you, speaking of pictures, you reuse this one a few times where like they're up against the chain link fence. Uh, what is he doing in that picture? Is he like showing his ass to the camera?
1: No, they're pretending to escape prison. That's ah. in a prison
0: yard. <laughs>
1: That's them in a, they're in a prison yard and they're pretending to climb over the fence. I, there is, uh, you know, there is truth in sarcasm. So, uh, you know, they're, they're not actually attempting to escape, but I think in their hearts, uh, they, they are, but yeah, they're scaling the fence of a federal prison, I believe.
0: Yeah. Sure. Um, like on the flip side of the coin, uh, you, you seem to get a certain amount of cooperation from the feds and from law enforcement. Uh, and it would seem like it would be hard to make without that. Are there any, um, like, are there any promises you have to make in order to get that, or uh, like, what is it? What does it require on your end to get them to be in it?
1: No, I think. Listen, this this case was a pretty big deal for them, both the loss and the win. You know, like there's a lot of ups and downs. For, for the feds in this case, I'll tell you that if you go to the FBI, uh, there's not a museum, but the FBI building in DC, there's like a tour and some displays and things for tourists to look at. And uh, each of the states gets to pick, or the FBI in each state gets to pick a kind of seminal case that defines their uh, their achievements uh, of all time uh, in each state. And it is the Willie and Sal jury tampering case. Miguel Moya, the, the, the jury for person, that is the FBI the FBI's like crowning achievement in the state of Florida. So they they took this all as you can see quite quite seriously. This pursuit went on for quite a period of time, required a lot of man and 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 woman power uh, and a lot of taxpayer dollars just to go after these two guys and then what they called the satellite cases. You can see how many people and jurors and lawyers and who were arrested and charged. And, and there was a, a joke for a while in, in South Florida that the, um, or there was a joke down here, um, that the, uh, that Willie and Sal and the satellite cases financed the criminal defense bar in South Florida for like 10 or 15 years, right. because every attorney in town had a client on one case or another, a cooperating witness, a defendant, a co-conspirator, somebody.
0: Yeah. I mean, like in my head, I, don't like have anything against lawyers and I agree with the principle that everybody deserves, uh, you know, a competent defense, but I still was like taken aback a little by the, uh, like the level of amorality uh, that some of the defense attorneys seem to have where they're like, Hey, as long as the check clears.
1: Well, I think, listen, I think when you're in that game, you see it as a game. I mean, when you Mm -hmm. spend you, when you spend day in and day out, In the criminal justice system, it's extremely exhausting. It can be very emotional. If you don't find your way to some sort of detachment from it, or able to kind of um, compartmentalize, that you can get real run down, like real quick. You know, Mm -hmm. if you get too emotionally involved, to take it, take everything too seriously. I mean, the consequences could be life and death, or or freedom, or you know, or incarceration for their clients. But there's only so you know, so in, so involved you can get. And these lawyers were really involved. I mm-hmm. mean, they were, I mean, for, I mean, they were Willie to were arrested in 91. They didn't go to trial till 95. So there was four years of just pre-trial motions and hearings. They went all the way or tried to go all the way to the Supreme court on the, the seizure, the search and seizure of the Lagorse house, that Miami beach mansion that Sal was at, where he was, he had all those ledgers as he always did. You know, get, you know just, every every kilo and every dollar sal not only knew where it was but had it written in a ledger book somewhere and so when the government you know uh stormed in and seized that those materials those defense attorneys, they fought that uh you know they wanted to get that evidence excluded all the way to the u.s supreme court where they ultimately they ultimately uh failed um but like this just went on so so i mean you have to especially in that era you have to what they called them the white members of the white powder bar is what they called them in Miami at the time. So you have to kind of take it some of these things uh, in stride. But but, uh, you know, so I don't think they meant to be cavalier. I think they understood that it's a game to some Mm -hmm. extent. And they're on the other team from the prosecution. And for a while, that was it was respected as such. It was really after this case, during this case, I should say, where the government really took the gloves off and they started to actually target the attorneys uh, and accuse them of being part, not simply representing the organization, but being like, you know, in house counsel. And two, at least, uh, yeah, two attorneys, at least two attorneys, I'm sorry, were indicted uh, mm-hmm. as a result of this case.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, the eventual case, a lot of it came down to money laundering. Um, like now with. Uh, Bitcoin and shell companies and this entire like secrecy apparatus. Like, do you think it would be easier for that organization to launder money now?
1: Well, you know, Miami's a tech hub now. I don't know if you heard, (laughs) Um, but yeah, which is just the new hustle. It's the new cocaine. You know, it's it's that yeah. Yeah. Miami subs. We have no indigenous industry. We kind of subsist from hustle to hustle uh, down here. Um, But do I think it would be easier? I think it, it the money laundering was pretty easy (laughs) back then i mean they owned banks the sunshine state bank was a bank that they had helped open willie and sal another deleted scene with um with uh some friends of theirs like childhood buddies um uh, so like they i don't say they owned a bank but they effectively owned the bank you know like they, they they had the run of the place um and this was a a bank effectively opened for the purpose of drug money laundering like that mm-hmm. was it. fact and it was ultimately shut down by the government for that um so for a while it was not that challenging um but yet there was i guess to your point is all that the transactions were quite overt like there was a paper trail obviously of everything and and um yeah it would certainly i would think be much easier uh for them to launder money now uh in the crypto world but uh, um but i don't know if the smuggling of the product would be quite uh, as easy, but maybe our next stock here, Crypto Cowboys, our next (laughs) uh, next documentary.
0: Yeah. Um, so you got the Seahawk racing shirt on, uh, who me? Yeah. Uh, I was just like, does powerboat racing, uh, exist without cocaine or are they like inextricably linked? Oh yeah.
1: I think at least Jim DeFini
0: says it like at least half of the world champions in that
1: sport were drug smugglers uh you know marijuana and or cocaine um yeah and and it was such an expensive sport that unless you were the budweiser boat or the benihana boat where you had a legit sponsor nobody had you know nobody had a job and nobody had a sponsor so where the hell was the money coming from you're talking about upwards i think of what they they estimated like a million dollars like per race that they would spend just on boats and crew and engines because you needed a backup engine in the event that one engine fails so you know just the, the kind of the pit crew so to speak and everything it was an extremely expensive sport squ- and anything on the water is dangerous and expensive you know so um yeah so no i i, I and 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 you notice it's not really so much a thing anymore offshore mm-hmm. powerboat racing it was kind of like disco music it existed at a time in which the drug that fueled it was you know was, was, was king and was popular so no i think the answer to your question is I, I i would argue i think some people would be upset with me for agreeing with you <laughs> but um, no, I, I would you know, there's no like just like there's no disco without cocaine. I, I think there's probably no offshore powerboat racing would not have exploded in the '80s. Mm-hmm. Okay, in the late '70s, early '80s, and then of course, I mean, through Miami Vice, like that, like that's really like my. I, I think most of our associations with with you know speedboats, cigarettes, Donzi formula is is through Miami Vice, which is of course all Miami drug smuggling milieu.
0: Right, I mean, do you see any other uh, like things that are sort of obvious cultural ripple effects from uh, the cocaine craze?
1: Um, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, listen, now I think a lot of music, popular music, now is coming. You know, the, the kind of nostalgia cycle is swinging back around to disco. You listen to a lot of mo- artists who are not alive. You know, when when disco was a thing, uh, whose producers are are very much borrowing those tempos and those beats and those bass lines and, and, and drum loops uh, from disco. So that, that's a major, I think, music-wise, certainly. Um, I think fashion-wise uh, as well. You know, every once in a while, I you know go out in the world and see someone in a members-only <laughs> jacket, you know. Um, so, no, I, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's sort of these 20-year nostalgia cycles. We tapped into that 15 years ago, I think, with the first Cocaine Cowboys. And now I think, you know, more, more people sort of coming around to, you know, to, 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 all things 80s, which I always think manifests itself first through music uh, and and popular culture.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Can you explain that hit list sort of thing that they were able to
1: publish uh, in a magazine, basically? Yeah. So, you know, um, the, the defense team was looking to gather uh, gather information and evidence against the cooperating witnesses or potential witnesses against William Sal, most of whom were themselves criminals, some convicted or admitted criminals because they had pled guilty in an effort to get a deal from the government, a reduced sentence in exchange for their cooperation against William and Sal. And so um, and, and point in fact, flash forward to the to the trial, the cross-examinations of the cooperating witnesses by the defense team were blistering, absolutely devastating. And it was because in the defense had more knew more about the witnesses than the government knew about their own witnesses. And this was because Willie and Sal spent $25 million on their defense in just the first trial in 95 and 96. And so they had private investigators, they had paralegals, they had associates, lead attorneys, um, and so they knew they had evidence against the witnesses against them that the government just was shocked to learn about during the trial. And so in an effort to dig up that dirt, they made a list, which they turned into an ad that first went in Champion magazine, which was a criminal defense attorney uh, magazine, uh, and then in Prison Life magazine, which true to its name, is distributed in prisons. And this list, many of the the men on this list were in fact in custody or in prison at the time. Um, and if they weren't in protective custody, you better rest assured they were immediately after uh, this ad came out. Because while the defense saw this as a research uh, effort, the uh, US Attorney's Office, the DOJ, saw it very much as a hit list. Uh, And in fact, uh, witnesses started, uh, potential witnesses against the boys started turning up dead uh, very shortly thereafter.
0: Right. Um, I mean, like without that, without the part where they, you know, start killing people and doing crazy things, I feel like there's a natural desire to want there to be like a... Uh, like a good drug dealer who just like makes some money and uh, takes it and splits like why and then no one was really able to do that in this to just you know take a bunch of money and and like right off into the sunset is that a pure like hubris greed thing or do you think there are uh, like logistical barriers for someone being able to do that I'm sorry, give it to me again? Like you I mean there was the one brother who we thought had escaped for Tabby, 25. yeah. Yeah. And so and and that kind of seems like the uh like the like a happy ending sort of like why can't that happen? Why uh, is it it's pure greed a, or is it is there some yeah. logistics involved? It's
1: not a happy ending. Yeah, I mean everybody ends up dead or in prison, including Tabby. Um, I mean, can you imagine what it was like living for 27 years with your wife, your son, and your daughter who were barely single or like single digits, I think mid, upper single digits when they when they ran away and living like that, looking over your shoulder for 27 years? I mean, I, I, I spoke with his wife, um, Gina Falcone, after they were busted, after they were caught. And she looked so relieved, dude. Like mm-hmm. she was so relieved. And he was like let me do whatever I'm going to do. Like, you, I think you gave give me seven years or whatever. you know, like you just like, I think it was a real weight, honestly, off their shoulders to, to finally get caught. So that's the bottom line is you wind up dead or in prison. There were some people who quit back in the day, you know, they made some money, their weekend warriors, maybe did a little smuggling on the side, made a lot of money, bought some real estate, bought a, what, a car dealership, maybe, you know, luxury car dealership, um, and then got out of the game. And some of whom Got out relatively unscathed. I think you just got to know when to quit, and that's the thing too. Back in the day, I got to think I'm just guesstimating that the average career in this industry uh, would have been maybe five years if you're you know before you get dead or or arrested. These guys operated for like 20 years, which is a pretty un unpre- all the while getting arrested over and over and over and over again. Um, but it was a pretty unprecedented run, mm-hmm. um, and and and. Hubris, I think, is a pretty good way to describe it. I think you also have to remember this also when they get busted in 91, which is really kind of the, you know, um, the beginning of the end, um, but only the beginning of the end. uh, They were like 34, 35 years old. So all this crazy shit had happened in their teens, their 20s and early 30s. You know, so like um, if any of us were to be judged by our 20s, I think, you know, (laughs) Quite a few of us would be doing some time. But no, I just mean that, like, we think we were crazy in our 20s. These guys were really, <laughs> really crazy right. in their 20s. So, but I think that youth, again, Miami, 70s, 80s, you're in your 20s and you're multi billionaires. Like, it reminds me actually of our documentary, Broke, that we did for ESPN 30 for 30. Like, there's this, like, Superman syndrome where you just think that you're, you know, here's guys barely out of college signing a multi million dollar bonus, signing bonus, right? You can't tell them anything, <laughs> you know, like they just, yeah, you can't, you know, so you can't convince them how to behave in their own best interest. They are just invincible. You can't say, listen, all of this could end tomorrow in one second with one injury or one arrest or whatever. You can't tell them anything. Like they're just, you know, these guys were just constantly moving forward. And as Jim DeFede says in episode one, walking between the raindrops. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, but it's, it's like they had enough money to afford planes and and offshore accounts like you would think one of them would have been hey i'm gonna move Left. to the philippines like the Q guys and uh you know just listen i, I keep thinking
1: I, I keep thinking i'll leave miami but where the hell would i go you know like it's like you know it's kind of it becomes a part of your your blood you know like uh, after a while um you know and they could have gone anywhere let me tell you something funny that deleted this is the kind of shit that's deleted scenes in this documentary that's how sort of big and crazy the story is you remember the um there's the attorney in 89 juana costa who gets murdered um and he's like he was like uh the lawyer who handled not just for william sal but a lot of the local drug kingpins um, offshore corporations and accounts, and this was all mostly the money was in Panama, and a lot of the uh, their like banker, their private banker um, in Panama, who was listed as a treasurer on a lot of their off you know their corporations and their offshore accounts um, was a guy by the name of Guillermo Andara, okay, who's so totally in bed with these major duty cocaine traffickers. When the United States of America goes and arrests Noriega, ostensibly for drug trafficking, right, and and uh, and allowing, you know, Panama to be a, a kind of a safe haven for drug trafficking and drug money laundering, the United States replaces Noriega with Guillermo and Dara. So the next president of Panama after Noriega that, that the United States ostensibly installs was Willie, or, was Willie and Sal's, uh, like, private banker and practically, you know, business partner. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just like,
0: you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, they're telling me I got to wrap up. Uh, Really enjoyed it. Thanks for talking to me again. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Vince. Anytime. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.